Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE, is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication, as well as grant proposals to receive research funding. You can find me at my name on LinkedIn, Avi Stamen, or on Twitter at ALE Translation. Um, I'm glad and happy to be joined today by Jeffrey uh, Herlimera. Jeffrey is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico in Magallanes and has a PhD from the Universidad Pompeo Fabra in Barcelona. He was the 2022 Obama Fellow at the Obama Institute for Transnational American Studies at Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz. His book, Decolonizing American Spanish, Eurocentrism and Foreignness in the, Imper- in the Imperial Ecosystem, was recently published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today. It's nice to have you. Yeah, it's great to have great to be out here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and congratulations on this podcast. I really, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much, and I'm, I and I appreciate also the early wake up in order to to make this all possible. So uh, maybe you could start us off by telling us just a little bit about this uh, the book that you published, uh, Decolonizing American Spanish, um, and maybe what's interesting to me is not only what the book's about, but maybe the story kind of that led you up to uh, deciding that this was an important book that you wanted to write. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Uh, well, the book itself looks in on the ways that. The U.S. university functions, in a sense, as a foreignizing apparatus for the Spanish language and and as kind of a corollary to that, uh, the people who use the Spanish language. And my own kind of uh, personal kind of academic experiences, certainly at the University of Puerto Rico, have been very important in kind of my formation of these these ideas. Um, I did spend some time here when I was when I was growing up. My grandparents lived in in Aguadilla, but uh, I didn't really live here until uh, you know, I was in my 30s. And when I did arrive here, and I discovered a lot of very interesting things with respect to the way that language, English and Spanish principally, but function in the university setting. 
uh, in the things that the, the skills and the abilities and the experiences and the philosophies that are developed here at our university that are very unique. Uh, and I think that these are these capacities and these competencies are, for me, they're extraordinary in, in my own kind of personal academic experience, uh, especially in comparison to kind of my, my own experiences in the U.S. And so uh, the book came about, yeah, uh, it, it kind of grew out of uh, two articles that I wrote, one uh, called After Hispanic Studies, which appeared in uh, Comparative American Studies, and then a commentary that appeared in, in the Lingua Franca's, Frank, Franca section of the, the Chronicle of Higher Education. And, uh, and the book was kind of a long time coming because those, those articles appeared in I think, 2016, more or less. But then uh, I got in touch with the people at Pittsburgh and, and they were interested in the book. But it, then Hurricane Maria happened and it was kind of like we lost like a year of basically academic life in Puerto Rico. But, uh, but yeah, but those were those are some I think that the, my own kind of personal experiences and, and academic experiences, both as a student and as a faculty member, uh, really kind of brought me into the into into touch with the ways that that language exists in Puerto Rico that are that are unique and that are in, in, I would say exceptional within the U.S. model. Got it. And and I'm curious if you can you know aside from a general uh, you know kind of background, if there was a specific, can you remember a specific incident or a specific story whereby you know you were confronted with this issue, whether it be in a course or you know a comment that was made to you by a student or a faculty member that kind of got you thinking um, more seriously about this topic or was it more general kind of, uh, you know, being in that environment and experiencing it day in, day out? Yeah, well, just some context about, about Puerto Rico and about kind of university and the way that Spanish and English kind of exist here. Uh, there are the, the Spanish language, it's a Spanish language institution. And so uh, I would say, I mean, in my classes, when I first arrived, I I, I would give the, the first introductory session in, in Spanish, just as a kind of, because that's the, the general language. And at the end of the class, at the end of that day, then the first session, I, I would give a poll to the students saying, uh, if you'd like to, for, to have the class in Spanish or, or in English. And I, and I stopped doing that eventually because there was never a class in the first, maybe, I don't know, two or three years that I did that activity that, that ever said that they were interested in having uh, the, the class done in English. Nevertheless, I found that uh, the linguistic capacities of the students in, in Spanish and in English is a resource for building knowledge. And the ways that uh, faculty members and students are able to jump back and forth and examine different topics using language as, uh, as a kind of a, a mode of, of, of exploration. And, and changing languages it changes knowledge and it changes the experience of, of certain things. And so using that as kind of a lever to, to bring in new experiences of, and for example, studying a text that's in English, in Spanish, so re reading a text in English, for example, uh, I don't know, Hemingway or something, and talking about that in Spanish, those I found bring a lot of new depths in, into the conversation that, that, that I think are really not as accessible in an English, kind of English only and a Spanish only uh, situation. So, so th those experiences at the Universidad de Puerto Rico certainly kind of brought me into, uh, in, into and also What's another other thing that, that I'd say kind of a, some personal experiences that, that I've noticed there, how when people come from the U.S. to to, to our university, and this happens occasionally a few months ago that NSF had a, uh, a program on our campus in, in December. And for whatever reason, I was I was invited, even though I'm a humanist. But I, I went, so I went and I didn't really do I didn't really participate much because it's in the sciences and I'm, I'm really work in literature and uh, in art and philosophy. But um it was interesting to see 
how the people who were involved in it from the Unitario de Puerto Rico, the faculty members, how the language change happened. So when before the, the people from the U.S. arrived in the room, we were you know, speaking in Spanish, having a regular conversation. And then as soon as the, the people from the U.S. people came in, the language changed. And this, I, it makes me think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Thurston Belbin's work, but he has a, a, a concept, skeptical animus, and, and, and it, which, which brings in what he calls uh, in, in, in German the Ubifangenite, which is a kind of an impartiality. And I thought, I, I felt like I was, that was something that was very tangible in that room once the language change occurred. And, uh, and, I, and I thought it was, is very, that those types of experiences are unique because there are multiple things happening. But if you're coming from the English language mindset, the monolingual mindset, only one, only one type of thing is happening and, and the other thing is kind of marginalized. So I, uh, and anyway, and, and just those are just a, another, some other reflections about that day there was i didn't like i said i, did, I didn't really say much during the, those because I'm, I'm in the humanities but at the end of the, the sessions one of the sessions one of the, the people said you know is there anything that you guys have any suggestions you guys have and you know and I, I raised my hand and i said well you should really since we have science classes here in in spanish and, and a lot of research that's done in spanish you guys should, should receive applications and, and conduct peer review in Spanish. And, and everyone on the panel really agreed with that. And it wasn't something that uh, seemed to be, uh, a, uh, you know, and, I, and in that sense, I, I, I know that our institution is, is a model for others in, in that we already do all of these things in, in two languages uh, and, and the ways that uh, knowledge itself uh, can be grown in certain ways that can't occur really, in a, in, even in the sciences in a monolingual environment. So, so let's let's talk about America for a second, and I'm curious to ask you about kind of um, you know in America, I think you know even if Spanish may be a recognized language, I think you'd be hard pressed to find too many colleges where you're going to be hearing Spanish um, in the classroom, um, you know at least from from a professor. So you know, and and in other places in the world, it's 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 a lot more common to have you know bilingual or or you know even um, you know many languages being spoken across courses, whereas I think in the U.S. it seems like it's, you know, maybe, I, I don't know what the official numbers are, but I'd guess in the high 90s in terms of the number of classes we're giving in English. Um, so I'm curious, kind of, maybe you can give us a little bit of a history of um, why that why that is, how that came about, and um, what you think some of the, what are some of the downsides? What are some of the risks that we're taking as a result or some of the um, collateral, I don't know, collateral damage, but, um, you know, consequences that we pay as a result of, of that approach? Yeah, well, there were, there were, there is a rich history of, of course, of many different languages in the U.S. And uh, it's a kind of an institutional plow of kind of English only that, that attempts to that. And, and that's something that's relatively new. And there were, uh, you know, in the, in the early part of the, the 20th century, there were hundreds of, of non-English language periodicals around, around the U.S. And, and that seemed to start to constrict uh, institutionally around the First World War. Uh, Eddie Roosevelt was a, was a kind of a famous model linguist, and uh, and there was also kind of a, a period of time in, in which even studies in linguistics considered use of multiple languages as as a shortcoming, and that has changed. And um, that that and there are some some circumstances with, for example, uh, children who grow up with with multiple languages have a, not significantly, but there is a measurably difference in, in kind of the, the, the size of the vocabularies available for, in both languages and, and so on. Nevertheless, uh, so, the, so those things were happening both in the academy and, and out of the academy. And there were political and social and kind of cultural uh, things that were occurring, especially with the, 
the, the, the circumstances with, with people arriving to the U.S. and the, the pressure to kind of, quote unquote, Americanize themselves and, and, and in doing that to abandon other languages, languages other than English. But there are, I think, many, many shortcomings to, to kind of using English as a, as a lingua franca, you know, the, the homogenization of uh, uh, in a language sense is it privileges people and it silences others. It, it gives some people opportunities. And, but it, it, I think we are all are, are poorer for this because not only for those social, social justice, but also cultural, and, but also the knowledge itself is, uh, is, is restricted. And there are, are many studies that, that people who use more than one language on a daily basis uh, have have different capacities than than others with with respect to, to uh, depth of attention and, and creativity and uh, many many positive things that are uh, that are developed on. and those are things that I don't know that are um, are experienceable within a, a monolingual monolingual kind of English only environment. Yeah, so I'm curious. You know, you mentioned about publications and periodicals, and I'm curious because that's where this topic really kind of hits me the most, which is you know we we've you know, consciously or, or just by inertia adopted um, English as the lingua franca of academic publication. And I think, you know, the, you've made a strong counter argument for what we're kind of losing as a result of that and, and, and what voices it may be, um, you know, not, not um, uh, expressing properly. Um, And I guess the counter argument or the, you know, to play devil's advocate would be to say that, well, if you've got, you know, if everyone can publish in their own language, do you actually have a common science terminology that can be used in order to describe a uh, phenomenon in order to come to a consensus in order to create a dialogue, right? So is there a risk on the other side of using different, if we're speaking in different languages, not being able to really have a constructive conversation that moves us forward and therefore maybe forcing everyone to write in English, even if people have different starting points um, is the price that we need to pay in order to enable that that you know, coherent dialogue. What would you say to kind of that approach? I think that there are there are arguments to be made. There are arguments to be made, but forcing people to use you know a language that is that's not of their choice, or or even a language that's not of their of their daily kind of surroundings. There are there are kind of the way that that kind of lops off uh, opportunities, and 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 I, I mean the price is. Uh, is, is enormous for across uh, many, many different. I mean, when you look at literacy, driving literacy itself through English and away from Spanish in ways that uh, these are, uh, these put people out of, out of universities. But when you look at, for example, uh, certain attrition rates and, and, and graduation rates are, are, are very, very much affected by that. And there are certain communities that are. And so if these communities, for example, were to have access to institutions like universities, uh, but also certainly, you know, middle schools and high schools and so on within, uh, within their own context, within their own, you know, the, if the language of the institution were kind of reciprocal with what was happening in the community, these would be, these would grow knowledge. And, and I, I don't have any real question about that uh, in ways that, in, in much beyond kind of the social justice angle, uh, when you think about kind of, well, I mean, when you think about what types of solidarity are being voiced, uh, this kind of, uh, the, the ways that English is privileged, these affect uh, many different things. And uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a, 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 saying, a phrase, in fact, from one of my students, Ingrid Millán, eh, so, that, so the language involved has to do with who controls whom. Uh, and even though we're talking about ostensibly these, these ideas of knowledge being uh, something that is 
a linguistic. I think it's a very difficult. I think it's a very charged idea to say that knowledge is neutral and a linguistic, and texts can be translated, you know, as the de facto kind of natural language of, of academic life. Uh, English being the language of science and humanities, it must be at the center of what our education, what our educational systems do. Those are uh, those are very difficult, really, to, to sustain those when you look at them. When you look at them, what is actually happening, uh, and the possibilities and the, and the restrictions that are embedded in that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's interesting because it's, you know, I find that sometimes researchers, not only do they publish or, you know, kind of like feel the impetus to publish in English, but oftentimes they will publish it in English against their own better better judgment. Meaning what I mean by that is I remember a particular story where we had a, a, a scholar who was studying poverty in South America came and wanted to, us to translate her article into English. And I asked her why, you know, like that's, you know, kind of what was the goal? And she's like, well, I need to get it published. And, I, you know, in English. And I said, well, who's the audience? And she said, well, you know, policymakers in South America. And I said, well, then why do you want me in English? She said, well, for career tenure. And then I can worry about the impact later. And, and that wasn't something she was saying proudly. She was actually quite bothered by that. Um, but I said, well, what, what is the point of doing all this research if it's not going to actually get to the decision makers who can do something about it? Um, and I think, uh, you know, so, so I definitely agree with you. And I think that um, one of my optimisms and hopes is that, you know, as technology uh, progresses, we might, you know, potentially could at a, at a cheaper cost than we're currently doing, uh, be able to render a text in parallel in many languages and really open it up um, first and foremost to the local uh, population that the research is really impacting or the study or the participants were members of, uh, but even more generally um, to, you know, to lay lay folks who may not be able to really, you know, take it in. And even to be honest, even researchers, right? I, I think that's kind of one of the big bluffs in, in academia is that everyone pretends like they, uh, you know, are, are comfortable and familiar with English. Um, and, and it's really a, a spectrum, right? Some people um, really are near native, but as someone who's been living in a foreign country for about 17 years, I can tell you that you know, there is a, 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 there's a difference, um, no matter how long and no matter how proficient you become in another language, um, it's never your mother tongue, right? I always say you can only have one mother, so you can only have one mother tongue. Um, and, and that may, that, that's a debatable point, but I, I think, you know, just in terms of level of comfortability, engaging in the topic, that's, you know, it's kind of a, an important thing to, for yeah. all of us to think about. And with, uh, with respect to something that often leads to, to academic publications, this would be a, for us, you know, external funding, grant proposals and, and so on. Those are, in fact, just, just some reflections about how those English-only competitions affect our campus and they, they kind of sort out, you know, people and so on. We've, my, my colleagues and I have done, have had some very interesting kind of conversations in recent years about how this impacts people in that, uh, you know, if, if you want to, even in the humanities, even the, the American Council of Learning Societies and the, the National Endowment for Humanities, these are English-only institutions. And uh, we, we did a, we had a roundtable a few months ago with, uh, with, Margarita Benitez, who's the former director of the Fundación Puerto Rican y las Humanidades, the Puerto Rican Humanities Council, uh, Ignacio Sanchez Prado, who's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, Joy Connolly, who's the, the president of the American Council, the American Council of Learning Societies, and Juliana Kudler, who's a, an officer at the at NEH. About uh, and the title was about English-only competitions and and reconsidering the impact of rejection. And in this, it, you know, I think. I don't know, I guess coming into this conversation as a humanist, speaking to, to and with humanists about language, about the role of language in, you know, in external funding situations. And we, we are in a situation in Puerto Rico that is 
I don't know that it's unique. Well, it is probably is unique that since Hurricane Maria, uh, our, our institution has had a 40% budget reduction. So we are in, things here are, are, are and the humanities, of course, are affected much more severely than, than other, other people on the campus. So in order to do the most basic activity in, in our professions, it's effectively put on us to secure external funds to do this. And so uh, I had a period of time when I was working as an administrator, as a, as a senator at the university, and then, and then as, a, as the department chair, department director. Um, and so we, we took this on and, and I encouraged my, my colleagues and so on to, to look into to, to applying for external funds. And we did. So we applied for NEH, we applied for ACLS money, and, uh, and, and all of these grant proposals were rejected. And, uh, and doing the assessment of those, of those uh, there, there were hundreds of hours lost. There were hundreds of hours lost to those. And we, you know, we, we are not in a position in which we can lose you know, hundreds of hours. Uh, and thinking about the extra work that is involved for people who are in our positions working in Spanish about texts that are in Spanish, you know, why is it this necessity that we have to study, you know, effectively Puerto Rican culture, but, you know, post-Maria Puerto Rican in English? What is the purpose of this? Why, why is this exigency there? You know, who benefits from it? Who is impacted by it? How does it destroy, you know, what we're trying to do here? And it does, it is destructive. And, and in fact, in the, and, and in this uh, conversation that we had, which was first kind of over email, but then, then over, over uh, uh, MSN Teams, it was pretty. I don't want to say it was insulting or offensive, but it was. It was very disappointing. What what the um, Jeff Burroughs, who's from NEH, uh, wrote to me, you know, saying that you know the the federal law requires that uh, the that's that's applicated that submissions that applications. I don't know what the word was. If it was, but he sent me the federal regulation, and I can't remember right now if the word was application or submission was for application. I think it was application for uh, for funds have to be in English, and so. Okay, we're in the humanities. You know, what what is your responsibility in this? When this federal regulation is destructive to human lives, you know, in the same in the same way that you know federal regulations in the past have you know, certainly not recognized people's citizenship, people's humanity, and now in this case we have a, a language issue that does something that's very similar that destroys people's opportunities and so on. What is your responsibility in in doing this? And I myself put, put forth some suggestions. We can really look closely at what these words say, what these words mean, and, and, and identify them. And so if application, the word in itself, the, the, the key word there, um, submit the application in Spanish. If, if we look into this institutional definition of application, it means a formal solicitation of funds. So put the formal solicitation of funds in English, one sentence, and then write the narrative in Spanish or something like that. I mean, there, there are lots of kind of solutions to this. Uh, and and what the, the response from them was, well, you're going to have it rejected. And yeah, okay. I mean, and in a, in a in a symbolic sense, in a in a in a solidarity sense, yes, let's write this, get it rejected, so we can say, look, this was rejected because because of this linguistic discrimination that you are carrying out, this linguicide that you are institutionally wielding and, and carrying out. And it, I, I I don't know. I, I don't think that it's defensible, really, in in any, especially the, in the humanities and the and the ACLS res, responses too were were similarly kind of disappointing in that saying that. And one of the arguments that they had was that we just don't have people who can do peer review in Spanish. And I said to myself, what planet are you living on that you can't find? It just like we are in our faculty, there are you know, 350 faculty members in the, in the arts and sciences, 300 and probably 35 of them could do peer review in Spanish. And, and we're one of 11 campuses of the Universidad de Puerto Rico. I mean, uh, it's just a, and, but at any rate, those institutions swimming in, 
resources and money and all of the power, the social and cultural power that they have, but also financial, you know, and saying that they don't have the resources for this. I find it just hard to, hard to, I don't know. I feel like there's a real disconnect between what we are living and what they are doing and how their policies do not, are, are not beneficial. And I understand that is, I'll finish here real few quickly as long, long response, but I understand those institutions, you know, the National Environment and the American Council of Societies. I understand that they have some reciprocal responsibility to the communities that they ostensibly serve. And, and I think this is an important one, a central one in the humanities to recognize language as a, as a, as a, as a mechanism of, of creation and of knowledge. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right so uh, it's really interesting points you're making i'm uh, you know I, i'm curious um you know to hear from you kind of what it, you know we, we kind of saw that it, you presented uh, i think in a compelling way the the downsides or the risks you know and the and the maybe you know lack of openness i'm wondering if we could make you know if you can make an argument on the flip side for what the benef- potential benefits and gains are um, you know, if we could incorporate not only translation, but also, you know, um, maybe even thinking primarily or thinking from the very outset of other languages that this would get consumed in. I mean, it could be anything in my mind from, you know, the, 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 the website of the of the institution to the handbook for the students to publication. You know, so what what potential latent potential does translation or does um, multilingualism have in store that maybe we're not taking advantage of yes yes i, I agree certainly all those things the uh, the websites being available for example the forms that you have to fill out and, and all these all this kind of rigmarole that you know or the kind of institutional steps before you even submit anything you know there, there's really an avenue there to just to, to help a lot of people to to enable to in, connect to include a lot of people by by, by taking on this types of action uh, translation i think in the i think maybe in the sciences it might be a little bit different but in, in the humanities i i find it as a very Kind of a charged uh, topic. Uh, I think about it, when I was when I when I lived in, in Barcelona. I there wasn't a linguistic program, linguistics program, or there was actually, but the, the, I was in the kind of the cultural studies. But and but I ended up having friendships with the people who, who were linguistic graduate students, and uh, and as like a second job, they were translators for um, into Spanish from certain movies and video games. And they were always like, look, search me out to say, like, what does this mean in Spanish? And, so on. and uh, I, I remember one of the, one of the, one of the instances with where uh, it was, it was a Lord of the Rings movie. And, and the, the phrase in English was, we will travel light, you know, and that's what, then they were, they were about to you know, get on their horses and go wherever. And they had translated this, which means we will travel by day. 
and I remember saying to to the the guy who was who was translating, I said, "This doesn't exactly mean that." I know that, like in a in a literal sense, it does seem like that because the words light, you know, it indicates day it would indicate daytime. But this is another kind of an idiomatic phrase, and travel light means to travel without carrying a lot of things. Uh, and uh, and he said, "No, no, 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 definitely, miras, sea." Anyway, and he, but he went with the, that translation that he had. And I remember when I went and saw it in the movie, and all the movies there have the, the subtitles in, in Spanish, and, and they put me ahead with it. Yeah, and I remember saying to myself, God, you know, and that's a very small thing. That's a very small thing. But that those things are happening. All Those those can be knowledge. I mean, very small words have can have enormous meanings, enormous significance. And that, that one maybe doesn't, but other, other things do. Um, and I don't know, when I think about... And I don't know if you've ever had to your texts translated into languages, into your other languages, for example. When I have had my work translated into into Catalan and, and into into Spanish, and it translated in my stuff translated into Spanish happens pretty pretty often, but it's always like I would never say this that way, or or and, it, or, and it's also it's kind of like I especially in well in I guess I can speak Catalan, but my Spanish is certainly my dominant language, and so when I see it, I can I can read and into what this person is misunderstanding in this translation. And then the words could mean the same thing. And they kind of do, it's kind of like if my I have two sisters and like, if they were to, to recount a story that happened to me, to other people that they're going to say it in a certain way, that's kind of like, yeah, I guess that's sort of right. But uh, you know what? I, I mean, I'm sure that I do this, would do the same thing when I am talking about my sisters about, you know, whatever happens to them, but it's a, it's kind of a disconnect. But, and, uh, and, and these things are, these things create, Changes that are that kind of differentiate authorial, you know, in, in the humanities. I think that's a uh, they, they're they're very much more complicated than in, than in the sciences. I do. I, I would like to think more about uh, about about the, the use of, of I think you said machine translations and and using those as uh, as tools. I think that those those can be used as tools and they should be used as tools. I think we should always have a real kind of critical mind about whatever tools that we are using and, and thinking about the context that they come from and where they, what, what the outcomes are and how they are, are often, and if not always heard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, what are some of your proposals or suggestions that you've put forward? I mean, you mentioned to us about the grant proposals, but you know, whether it's in the academic environment and ecosystem in general, or in publishing in specific, what were, what would be some of your suggestions or ideas to, you know, make, uh, academia a little bit less uh, monolingual and open up opportunities for alternative for publishing in other languages. Yeah, well, I think that the University of Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico in general have have already kind of figured all these many of these things out. In that, uh, even though what is happening here is you know it's a colonial destruction, or say a programmatic destruction of, of of culture and language and so on. It's what's very interesting about especially the University of Puerto Rico is the way that these things come and the way that they are dealt with internally in a specific way that and language is a very fundamental part of that. Uh, and so, and when you examine kind of this, and I think that there's some Belton's term for this, this is very useful, this impartiality toward, and, and I, I would describe it as impartiality toward kind of the imperial narratives in the imperial myths, in this case, the, the English language, maybe, maybe you have to use it because it, it's, it's forced onto you and it's, but those things happen in life and, and, they're terrible and they shouldn't happen and we should do everything we can so that they do not. But that when they do, how do you interact with this? How do you, how do you move with it? How do you, how do you make it, how do you benefit? How do you not benefit from it? How do you, how do you make it your own? And so on. Uh, and I, I would 
I would say that this, this the notion of kind of the, the Americanization of Puerto Rico has largely failed. And it's, yes, you're going to drive down the street and see, you know, the chain stores and so on, but you're not going to hear the English language and you're not going to, you know, the, a lot of the, the, I think it's very difficult to imagine, you know, kind of the, but, but the Puerto, Puerto Ricanization of the U.S. And the example that I use in the book is, uh, is really thinking about how the, the competencies that are developed uh, at our university would be very implement, implementable, maybe, maybe not implementable because in certain areas, but uh, with respect to Spanish, because you know, Spanish is not a, a, a significantly minority language at everywhere, but it is many, many, many places. But thinking about this kind of Puerto Ricanization of the U.S. higher ed and that, you know, when, if using, saying, for example, a, a, a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph or even an entire class or even an entire course in Spanish is not an incendiary thing, but it's an ordinary thing because it's something that is interacting with. And that's what the decolonial move really does is it, it un, uh, un, unlinks from these imperial narratives and it localizes knowledge production. And so having the language of each institution be reciprocal, not to the imperial narrative, not to English, but rather to uh, to, to what is the local language. And, and I'd like to just say some, some, some cases that I'd like to note. And uh, in, in, I grew up in, in Massachusetts and uh, the languages where I, where I grew up uh, certainly were, there, were, there was English, but there was also Portuguese. And in in, uh, when I was, uh, up until I was eight years old, I lived in a part of Falmouth, Massachusetts called T-Ticket, which kind of right abuts a, a part of town mm-hmm. called East Falmouth. And East Falmouth is kind of like, the, I would say like the seat of Portuguese culture in, in, that, in that area. And uh, when I was on the bus and things, and we hear Portuguese in, in, and then, especially in the soccer field too. But then by the time you get to high school, the only time that you hear it was on the soccer field. You wouldn't, it was, and you would go up to these, these kids who are, you know, a friend of mine, for example, John, whose parents are from Portugal. He was born in the U.S. You go up to him and ask him, like, John, do you speak Portuguese? He'll look you right in the eye and say no. And I'm thinking to myself, and you think to yourself, you know, John, two days ago, I was at your house. And, you know, the phone rang, you picked it up, you spoke to your grandmother in Portuguese and then hung it up. And then, you know, but this is the way that the Portuguese language there in that place is is stigmatized and is made something like a black mark in that reality is terrible. Now, I'd like to just say, though, though, there are resistance to that. You know, there's a, a UMass Dartmouth, which is a, a university right across public today from us, right next to New Bedford. New Bedford is really, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Massachusetts, but New Bedford is really kind of like the... the, the one of the hubs of Portuguese American culture in, in, in Massachusetts, certainly, if not the, the whole country. But in fact, John Raposa's this friend of mine's parents moved there, and they I think his mother went to finished high school there, and then they moved to Falmouth. But uh, it, but there, so in the, the university there, which is UMass Dartmouth, they have a, a Portuguese language and cultural program, which that type of thing has to have should be happening everywhere, especially in Massachusetts. And and you know when I think about one of the places where I like to go most with my parents in Massachusetts, even though we, we don't speak Portuguese at home, I wish we did. Uh, it's called Mary Ellen's Diner, where that's the Portuguese is the language in that diner where we go. Uh, and this institutionalizing that language, what it would do for people like John Raposa, people like Alvaro Melo, people like Luke Silva, people like Delta, you know, the friends of mine that I, that I grew up with. And, uh, and it would mean new things for for them, but also for me, you know, and, and for for everyone there. And those are, and these things are happening on a on a smaller scale, like a local scale. Like I said, I'd like to say that to cite that 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 at UMass Dartmouth and uh, in Maselo, there's a, a man who's at UMass Boston. He retired, but but he's from uh, Cabo Verde, and uh, he he's worked a lot on this and this. So these things are happening. It's very it's so because the way that kind of you know I would say Massachusetts that's where I've experienced, but the power and the, the imperial power of these 
institutions is so great that you're always kind of pushing against the tide. Uh, Amarilis Melo, also, he's a, another, uh, another, another person who's important in, in this dialogue with respect to, to language in Massachusetts. But I think, so the, those are, are, are spaces that are being built. And now that we are kind of in a decolonial kind of period that is kind of questioning these imperial narratives and, and the, 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 the positive notion of a myth of, of kind of English in all these spaces. And uh, those are just, just being able to ask that question, you know, is the presence of English in this space, is this a positive, is this positive or not, or in this classroom? What is it doing? How is it affecting people's culture and people's identity? And how is the institution? Uh, what could it be doing better? Yeah. And I think that Puerto Rico is, a, is an excellent, excellent example for that. And I think that you must start with this, too. I, I want to say both of those. But because of you know, English is here in the University of Puerto Rico, but it, it is it is certainly dealt with in a way that I feel is uh, is very, very unique. And, it, and it's very interesting because it's uh, you can kind of. Uh, play with it and, and use it in, in a way for your own, own it in, in, to, in your own way. Amazing. Fantastic. Jeffrey, this has been really, really interesting and insightful, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on with me today and to speak. Um, if folks want to like see your research, your primary research, or maybe, you know, uh, follow you or learn more about you online, what's the best way to go about doing so? Uh, well, you can reach out to me. I send a lot of email. We don't have uh, here. We don't have Project Muse, so I often like every every week. I spend a lot of time sending email to the scholars to get their research because. But uh, I, I said put mine up on sometimes on uh, academia.edu and uh, and LinkedIn. But you know, I'm, I'm available on, online certainly. Um, I think I've had a lot of excellent kind of connections that way certainly. So, yeah. Great. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been really interesting, especially, you know, coming from the world of author services where we help, we often help um, primarily English as an additional language um, scholars. Um, that's my day to day to hear someone kind of take it and talk about the theory, but also the theory, but also practice and, and really resonates with me a lot. And I think that it's important, you know, it, it's, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, a lot of, issues for us for society to take care of but i think language sometimes for some reason takes a back seat oftentimes so i appreciate your your work to uh kind of bring it to the fore and remind people that it's something that's really important um and uh yeah and i look forward to continuing our conversations um and seeing kind of what progress you make I, I think you know it sounds like uh you know you've made some impressive uh you know steps until now but there's seems like there's a lot more work to do Thank you so much. Yeah, I agree. And then this kind of lethargy towards language, I think, is, is sort of starting to, to erode a little bit. And uh, is in part to, to, to work like yours. Also, the fact that the New Books Network has that in Spanish. Genial. Oye, enhorabuena. So thank you. <laughs> there you go. Shout out to Marshall there for making sure. Yes, I spoke to him. I know that's an important priority of theirs is to um, make sure that New Books Network is not multi is, is, is multilingual and is not monolithic, uh, monolingual anymore. So that's um, we're, we're, we're it's baby steps. But it's uh, steps in the right direction. Absolutely, and I mean the New Books Network is—you know—it's it's not as good as coffee, but in the morning it is fabulous. I, I really have—it's been a wonderful part of my day, especially yours. I, I really enjoy yours, of course. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. I appreciate—I appreciate the compliments. Um, yeah. So have a great, a great rest of your week, and um, yeah, we look forward to, uh, to to following up on this chat in the next few months. Take care. Thank you. Lucky Land 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.